I just started the recording, so yes. And we will eventually find our way to Matthew chapter 5. So you can turn there if you want, but I'm sure we'll look at a couple of passages as we meander our way to that passage of Scripture. That's our ultimate destination, but tonight I probably will spend more time introducing this series that I'm starting, Seek First His Kingdom. This is the first chapter, but will probably be an introduction. I want to do two things in this introduction. First of all, I want to put us on the map prophetically. What I believe is happening in our uh, day and age regarding the church and what our response should be. So I'm going to talk about that. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, uh, that will lead us into the kingdom teachings of Jesus that we're going to have a series about. And uh, I'm going to introduce some of the concepts of the kingdom to get us set up to look at Jesus' teachings line by line as we look at the Sermon on the Mount and perhaps go farther into Matthew. Depends on how this series goes. But... um, Yeah, so will this series be once a month for the next 20 years in our monthly gatherings? I don't know. Uh, Will I find another venue to maybe lay some of the teachings out and record some things? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't matter right now. As long as the teachings get out, we'll figure it out. Um, I don't have a live television show that you can tune into, so that's not an option at this time. But we'll figure that out. But this will be part one, right? And... Um, There's several things on my mind, so we'll get to the Beatitudes, Lord willing, at one point. There's a couple of other passages of Scripture that are on my mind regarding where we are as the Church of Jesus Christ in this nation, but really just globally. We are in a period, among other things, okay, this isn't the only thing happening in our in our world and in our era. But one of the things happening um, in the church is that we are undergoing a period of chastisement from the Lord. Right? Chastisement is not condemnation. Condemnation is the very thing that we are not under. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 10, okay, that was Romans 8, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that we, when, when we are judged, speaking of the church, and he uses that term, all right, um, perhaps not the most popular term to use, and some theologies are actually written against this concept, but it, it is within the, just the, the, the purview of the scriptural worldview. When we are judged by the Lord, we are, we are, we are chastised. So that we would not undergo condemnation with the world. So the purpose of chastisement, like Peter says, judgment begins in the house of God. Um, The kind of judgment that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 10, that he translates as chastisement, is because we are favored children, beloved of the Lord, being trained for an eternal kingdom. So when we embrace the way of the world and then take it farther and make it a habit and and value it more deeply than we value the kingdom, at least in certain ways, then the Lord in His fatherly grace 
will bring loving, gentle chastisements to his people. Right? Now, if we take that truth and put it in the, in the context of anger, carnality, you know, a dysfunctional family, an abusive father, that's very, very difficult to hear. Because God's not like that. In Hebrews 12, uh, it says that, uh, that we're not to despise the discipline of the Lord. Because whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And every son that He receives, He gives discipline to. Right? That's what the Scripture teaches. It's because God loves us, and as that text goes on to say, He wants us to share in His holiness... So he's training us, okay? We don't come in and he starts spanking us. Rather, he delights in us. He loves us. Just even the the smallest, weakest prayers in the morning that we lift up is like burning incense that soothes him. And he's close to us and he regards us as his children very highly with great esteem, great honor. He, he, He digs us. He goes deep into our hearts and He loves us. He made us. He wove us together in our mother's womb uh, with His own hands. I mean, he, He's really into us and we have to feel His delight. But He's also training us. Okay, the church in many ways, especially the church, broadly speaking, in the Western world that I'm more familiar with. So I say this out of, out of that uh, familiarity. But also, I believe I have the mercy of God to diagnose some of this accurately. I'm not just giving my opinion. But um, we, are, uh, we are undergoing a, tra- a chastisement, having gotten a bit off track in some areas. And the Lord's very gracious in His dealings with us. Some of those areas where we've gotten off a bit. And you understand I'm not trying to be negative, I'm trying to be real. And... We really need to wake up and sober up. Because we are super spoiled in the West. We've got a lot of good things that sometimes distract us from the Lord. So the Lord's just gently reminding us to get on track. And there's a way to respond, which of course is is where I'm going with this. But we are experiencing some discipline regarding our handling of prophecy. Which actually belongs to a, a deeper issue that I'll address momentarily. But we've become a bit flaky and off with our prophetic ministry. And it's not just that we erred when we've prophesied certain things would happen politically or with the virus. But if there's a whole culture of the prophetic ministry that's been like disoriented away from the local church, which is exactly where it belongs, and then sent to something global from there. But it's become its own thing and has just become kind of a... A jumbled mess in a lot of ways. And some of those prophetic voices are still insisting that their wrong prophecies are right. And it's, yeah. So we just need to get our bearings. The Lord is disciplining us in that area of prophecy because He values prophecy very highly. And the, the local church's health depends on scripture informed, mature people based prophecy when the Corinthians abused the spiritual gifts the last thing the apostle Paul did was say well then let's de-emphasize them no he taught them how to get it right rooted in a maturity around the cross 
and the gospel itself, and then a mature people who love one another at a local level. So we're being chastised in this area of prophecy so that we'll get it right. We're also being chastised for some idolatry in the political realm, where we've put more hope and stock in political leaders or parties or ideologies rather than in King Jesus. Uh, Along these lines, I have this passage of Scripture that's come to mind here. From Isaiah 6, you don't have to turn there, but you're familiar with it. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. That's significant. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. So the feet or the bottom part speaks of a modesty. The... Covering of the face speaks of holy terror. Because God in this, in this vision and in this council session, He's not just lofty, but He's lofty and exalted. So He's already in the highest place of the universe, right? It's God. But in this session and vision, He rose. And Isaiah was witness to God rising up, which is the fulfillment of prophecy before this passage. As the oracles came from Isaiah and were speaking into an apostate people, it warned these people that the proud look of man will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And it repeated this several times throughout the first five chapters. And it's Isaiah himself prophesying. The proud look of man will come down and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And that proud look was partially centered on their hope in a political system. So it's significant that it was when King, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Alright, when, when the political world was shaken, Yahweh rose up in that year. And the prophet saw the vision in fulfillment of his own prophecies, which is ultimately prophesying the day of the Lord. That's what those prophecies ultimately meant. But Isaiah had his miniature version of it. He saw in a council session that in the day King Uzziah went down, in the year he went down, so to speak, along with all of this this carnal uh, self-exalting of the nation of Judah, uh, God was exalted as the only sovereign who should be the only focus of his people. We are in a season like this. We have confused the kingdom of God with American political systems. On both sides of the aisle. Not just one side, both sides. It's good and wholesome, according to 1 Timothy 2, to pray for our nation and for governing officials. We should love liberty and justice. And whatever we're granted to enjoy even in this present evil age, praise God for it so that the door can be open to the gospel. That's the spirit and the point of 1 Timothy 2. But when we cross the line from that into worldliness and or idolatry, then the Lord is going to challenge us so that we can gently be put back on track and find ourselves loyal to Him rather than to our political um, preferences. So that's something that's happening here that... It's King Uzziah goes down, the Lord goes up. We're in a season where our, our, our 
Our carnality, our humanism in the church, our idolatry is being challenged. And the alternative is the exalted sovereign God. Let's put our eyes back on him. Okay? The passage goes on. By the way, these seraphs, the word means a fiery serpent. Okay, not in a bad way. It's something to do with the, this, these creatures. They're, they are fire. But when God rises up, they hide their faces. And poor Isaiah, who appears to be the one man, the one human on this council, finds himself in this temple, on the earth, temple in the heaven at the same time. It's like these, these fire beings are blocking their own vision from the Lord. And Isaiah's like, huh. he's looking. <laughs> so another thing that happens in the midst of all this, And we'll get back to that point. Isaiah is looking. These seraphs are calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy. That's interesting to me, that they're not speaking to the Lord. Holy, holy in worship. They're telling one another. It's almost like a warning. Holy, holy. I don't know how that goes. It's happening again. He's rising. Hide your face. And again, Isaiah is like, oh boy. Because he's watching the whole thing. The whole earth is full of His glory. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So again, this this exaltation of the Lord is shaking the foundations of our thresholds in the house of God. Our foundations are being shaken. Another thing that's being dealt with by the Lord in the church is not only our political attachments, which is still kind of nutty if you're out there looking at any of the things that are being said by the church and the different sides and pro this and against that it's, it's, it's a little bit baffling and surprising but it's not just that it's the whole constitution of the church that's being challenged right now the attendance, conference, concerts, culture that's become a culture I don't talk about, I'm not talking about having a once in a while event like that I'm talking about making that church a consumer oriented event rather than a family on mission, whose value system includes discipleship, becoming like Jesus, rather than picking and choosing preferences, like we're on a mall, uh, at a mall. Uh, The entire constitution of the church is being challenged by the Lord. Constitution. Constitution? Not to me, but to you, of course, it's a pun, my darling. Yes, I know, the Constitution of the United States of America. I, I understand. <laughs> Amen. And that's a prophetic pun my dear daughter has brought out for us. Because the gospel is the Constitution of the church. It's not just how we get saved. It's how we live. It's our way of life. And that Constitution says something different than our churchy implied Constitution that's based more on consumerism and convenience rather than discipleship and family. And reaching out that way. So the thresholds are shaking. And finally, we have Isaiah, who now he's again standing there, watching all this with all the shaking. He says, woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. And then, of course, there's this beautiful Old Testament transaction of the The seraph takes the coal 
who, and he can't even touch it. He has to have an instrument and it touches Isaiah's lips. And Isaiah undergoes this cleansing of his lips. And a deeper redemptive moment, he undergoes this whole thing. And then he hears the voice of the Lord. As if something happened inside of him in a deeper cleansing that made his inner ear more sensitive to the voice of the Lord. So this speaks one other thing I want to address before we move on. Isaiah sees the Lord, he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. Which is both a part of his theology. If you see God, you can't live. He found out he can. You know, he saw the holy, the uncreated. Those two things are incompatible. Clearly, I'm a dead man. But rather, that humility was met with a kiss that purged him. It was met with mercy and grace. So that's a good thing. But not only does he say, I'm ruined. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. So this is the same prophet whose lips were prophesying oracles for five chapters. I don't think Isaiah had a cussing problem that he was hiding. Which is another thing we're being chastised for in the church. Not just cussing, although I hope we are being cleansed of that. But the whole double life thing, that's another thing the Lord is addressing. Leaders who give themselves a public presentation and are living something else in the dark. I mean, we've always had a measure of that we've had to deal with in the church, but God's addressing that also. But my point is here, Isaiah is saying, I'm a man of unclean lips, but I doubt he had a secret life going on. This is a prophet who was anointed by the Spirit of God, who walked with God. This is a holy man who was not confessing, I got this secret Problem where I use profanity and I tell these rotten jokes when no one's around as if that's okay. He didn't live that way. Compared to the people of his day as a prophet who stood with God who stood on the counsel of the Lord and who ran with messages from the counsel of the Lord. This was a holy man who you wouldn't point out. It's like, dude, you got to clean up your language a little bit. That's not what's happening. But in the presence of holy, eternal Yahweh, Suddenly, even a man whose conscience was probably not bothering him regarding any problem with his speech, he suddenly realized the defilement of speech that he didn't detect as carnal outside of his presence. But in the presence of God, he realized defilement. Even my lips are unclean. Uh, When I'm a prophet to the people, it looks like I'm the one with the clean lips and they're the ones with the defiled lips. But in the presence of Yahweh, I'm closer to the people than I am to Him. So it's not for us to judge what's going on out there just because if I'm accurate in my diagnosis as to how we're being chastised. It's not our place to find our contentment by judging others and pointing these things out. It is our place to let the holiness of God speak to us where we are and to repent and humble ourselves. That is the response to this hour of chastisement. We are called to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I was waiting for an amen.
Maybe it was some people took that as pride to be the first ones to say amen. Or humility. That's why we wouldn't speak. This the word of the day is humility. Christ was the great humble servant who didn't just go below his own inherent dignity to serve us, but even went below human dignity. Even though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the cross is as low as a human could go. Even Roman citizens who were uh, worthy of death would not be impaled on a stake. That was for the outsiders. So Jesus went low just by becoming human. But even as a human, he went as low as someone could go because that's what we needed. And he was treating us as if we were more important than himself, which is what Paul says at the beginning of that passage, the way we should treat one another. Now, we, we are not more important than the Lord, but he treated us as if we were because that's humility. Humility is like the heart and soul of Jesus. It's who he is to extend himself to serve others. And the Lord is saying, look, what's in order for the day is not just a special prophetic moment. This is just biblical Christianity. This is how family is created. This is how disciples are made. By a people who are humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God and before one another. So we're called to humble ourselves. We all as the church, okay, not them, we us here and the church of Jesus Christ. We need humility. Because humility expresses itself in many ways that we often express the opposite. Said another way, pride expresses itself in a lot of ways that we don't always recognize. The Lord is calling us to forsake our pride and humble ourselves before Him. What kinds of things express humility? Repentance. Is an act of humility. Right? When we have ongoing sin or we entertain these selfish lusts and they continue and they continue and they continue, we just let them kind of ride alongside the other areas of our character. That's called self-indulgence. Now sometimes things get habitual and we need help. They become um, addictive. And we do need help. We absolutely need outside help. We need intervention from the Lord. We need our brothers and sisters. And so um, our repentance may have to include, and, and well, it will always include confessing our sins to one another, but it might include especially uh, confessing certain things to certain people and saying, you've got to help me. I can't do this by myself. That's called humility. God will regard that more than he'd regard the person that is not in that kind of bondage but just walks around prayerlessly. Who doesn't get up and fall to his knees in the morning and start crying out to God. Just because someone might be walking in victory, they still may be like the publican in Luke 18. Or not the publican, the, the Pharisee that says, I'm not like the publican. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on all that I get. 
God resists that. That's my other passage of Scripture from 1 Peter 5. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He will lift you up at the right time. That's our word for the day. The first thing we do to humble ourselves is repent of sins that we've been indulging and feeding. Another way that we humble ourselves is by developing a prayer life. Prayer is a sign of humility because it puts God on the throne of our lives. And it expresses our need that we can't just live without God. We have to have interaction. We have to be branches abiding in the vine. Or else we're not drawing divine life and bearing fruit. Come on. Thank you for that. (laughs) Prayer is an ongoing expression. It's, it's, it's an ongoing way of breathing humility. So, it's, you know, so you don't have to try to be humble. You lower yourself before you got, before God and, and you and I say, Father, I love you and I need you. Just the act of prayer. I mean, prayer encompasses worship, adoration, praise. Come on. Feasting on God. How is that humble? Because we're saying you're the center, not me. Life is not about indulging my appetites. It's about serving your heart that loves my prayers. So let me rise up, if not at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end, or whenever, and just just offer you some burning thanksgiving and praise. But not only that, then it recognizes, I can't do this without you. Please help me. Right? The psalmist said, I rise before the dawning of the morning, and I cry for help. I hope in your word. That's just, a, it's just an expression of, expression of humility. If we don't pray regularly, it's because we have pride. Now, if we're caught in like we're too busy, but our heart is prayerful, fine. If, if life is almost impossible to crack the code right now, but our hearts are still before the Lord saying, Lord, I need you, help me. Amen. Prayerfulness is, I think, you know, the foundation of prayer. Jesus said you won't be heard for your many words. But there's an attitude and a posture that speaks humility. Amen? Amen. Prayer is an expression of humility. And I mean prayer, prayer. Like it doesn't have to be pretty. I mean to connect with God kind of prayer. Or when you're not feeling it, forcing it anyway, so to speak. Maybe forcing it isn't the right word, but you know what I mean. It's like beat my body, make it my slave. I'm not feeling it, but I know I'm in the counsel of the Lord. I don't go by my feelings. I go by... The written word, and I'm here before you, God. I cry out to you. I pray for your blessing on my wife, my children. I pray for our leaders. I pray for our church's revival. I pray for health. I pray for healing, God. I pray for depth. I pray for expansion. Uh, In Jesus' name, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. I pray for the power of the Passover blood of the Lamb over each and every house. Lord, that everything bad passes on by. And you fill our lives with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. Come on now. Holy Ghost prayer is not an expression of pride. It's an expression of humility. Because God, we need you. You are God. We are not. And so we don't want to have the right theology, but the wrong practice. Where our theology says you are God and we are not. But our practice says, I am God and you are not. Prayer reverses that. It's a little repentance and prayer cocktail going on there. Fasting is a way, I meant cocktail in the generic sense. <laughs> Mixture. 
Incense. There you go. Incense burns. Okay, fasting is a way to humble ourselves. It's a way of denying our own appetites at a fundamental level. Both our our, uh, physical and emotional dependence on food is challenged through fasting. So it's a good way to humble ourselves. See, and we're, we're going a few steps further before we leave this topic. But one of the things I'm trying to get at is that the kind of repentance and prayer and fasting that we need is not like a one and done really good service where we just end at the altar, which is great. But we're so eventful in our thinking because we're big event oriented. We got, we got to have it all. I, I, oh, 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 get the best speakers and the best fans. It's like, what, what? Do we need all that for you to be like a solid Christian and to pray well? What happens if that all gets taken away? Where's the power of God? Rather than the power of all the things we could do without God. So we've become addicted to this atmosphere where it's got to be all just right so that we can worship just right. It's like that's arrogance. So it's not, it's not just that we should pray and repent and fast. It's that we should reorient ourselves to put God first. So it's not just like the big altar call. It's a lifestyle. That's throne-centered. That's humility. So humility includes repentance, prayer, fasting. It includes devouring the Word of God. The written Word. Rather than a here and there devotional, like a greeting card devotional life. Or having the one key verse put up on the screen. Right? It's a sign of humility to see the Word of God as the source of life itself. And to treat it as if it were that. I mean, even if you have to drive a lot. Nowadays, we have the technology. I just heard an old TV show as I started to say that. And for those of you old enough to know what I'm talking about, you can come see me later if you think you have the answer to that trivia question. What TV show was I just echoing? We have the technology. Those of you born after 1978 probably have no idea what I'm talking about. So those of you born before, just think about it. Unless you weren't watching TV in those days. This is what you call a tangent. (laughs) Preachers, I did this on purpose to help you understand to avoid these things. (laughs) My dear precious wife had a long drive in her teaching career when we first were married. She would drive uh, from Lakeland to Plant City and back every day. And she'd listen to Matthew on cassette tape. And she learned Matthew's gospel by heart. So every once in a while, I'd say something or whoever would say something would trigger, uh, you know, a phrase out of Matthew NIV 1984. (laughs) (laughs) And she would just pop off an entire passage of scripture. (laughs) She was like, (laughs) (laughs) we have ways that we can devour God's word uh, until it devours us. And when the Lord spoke to Israel in Deuteronomy 6 and 8, he said, "I, I brought you in to the desert to humble you. And I fed you manna so that you would learn. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The church is being exposed for its commitment to its own traditions and fashions 
rather than the living word of God that literally changes our brain and heart waves to become Christ-like. So our devouring of the word of God is an expression of humility. Another expression of humility is reconciling broken relationships over which we have the power to reconcile. Sometimes we don't because we have peace on our end, but that person insists on keeping the relationship broken. And in those times, Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. But where we remember our brother has ought against us, our sister, whatever the situation is, reconciliation, making broken relationships right, is a form of humility and repentance. To be a part of an actual community of faith, rather than affiliated with an assembly that attends, is one of the greatest expressions of humility that we learn about in the Word of God. Because in a family, you can't live for yourself. You have to consider other people. And the scriptures teach this quite bluntly and then even assume it in the other things that it says throughout. Uh, Family relationships cause us to be vulnerable so that we can resist that temptation to put on some kind of face in some kind of way. At least a little bit. Even if we're not total hypocrites, there's always that temptation to just, everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay. Hey, in family, you got to just be real. And if you can still be spiritual and honor one another in a real, authentic environment, then you're a real person. I don't see how we could do it without community. It's like, recently when we're hearing about these um, you know, fallen ministers that had, had the double life thing going on, and then some of the, some of the, uh, some leaders then go public and address it. And they do, the ones that I've read, these uh, public addresses of these falls, uh, the ones that I read did such a good job at diagnosing the problem and speaking into that. I mean, I really, the the, the few things I read uh, about how to avoid like this double life thing or how do we address this because we trusted this leader and we didn't know this other thing was happening. And the way they responded, I thought was great. I thought it was scriptural. It was, you know, I learned. But no one mentioned the lack of family connections at a local level that would have been able to determine this problem pretty quickly in the process. They mentioned accountability, but you could set up accountability. But you can't set up family. When you, when you, when you have enough knowledge of one another. That's all about getting weird. But, you know, like there's this weird intrusion of other people's lives. What am I talking about? I'm talking about love. But neither am I talking about the other extreme where we just attend and think everything's okay. I'm talking about actually loving one another. Where when some of these things come up, if we're not willing to say something, somebody's going to and say, you know what? I had you on my heart. Something doesn't look... Look, is there anything going on with you that I could pray with you about? Because not only is it, is it more quickly exposed... But it's dealt with with love and protection and discretion. Rather than when it blows open into shame. And then it's just so ugly. It's, it's too late to save most of the testimony. You have to start all the way over again. No one addresses that. It's like this gross thing was going on. For years and years. Terrible thing. Using the Lord's money to do it. And then it's like, well, there was this, there was that, there was this, there was that. You know, accountability was needed. Yet Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another day after day, as long as it's called today, 
so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's just not possible to live a self-indulgent life in the middle of family. And if that's in place, then we can trust people that are being sent out into public venues. We've done the opposite. We're like, give us the public venues, the public faces, the public videos, the public presentations, and then in private we don't even care. Well, then that's what you get. Community is an expression of humility. And then, of course, in general, submission to the Lord, submission to one another, Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. That means living deferentially, honoring and submitting and caring about what's going on with other people rather than just ourselves. This is built in. Submission to leadership in the wholesome way. Wholesome leaders, wholesome leadership. Okay, not people dictating, but rather people who give instruction, people who give correction when it's needed. It's like there's a submissive attitude that's shared by the whole community and then in relationship to leaders as well. And related to this is a vision for the coming of the Lord that lives soberly awaiting His return and even hastening it. There's just something about keeping in mind that Jesus is coming back. His day is on the calendar. It's coming. And then he will judge everyone according to his deeds. That's quoting Jesus himself. There's something about having that vision as a present motivator that humbles us and keeps us humble. So with this conviction that we are under chastisement and that the word of the day is to humble ourselves, and again, it's humble ourselves, not wait for God to do it. Right? If, if we are in a period of gentle and loving chastisement, when we humble ourselves, we're all good. Just humble yourself. Jesus said, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. So, right? That position of prostration, if, if I'm on the floor before the Lord, I can't fall <laughs> because I'm already down there. So if that's the posture of heart, we can't go down because we we bring ourselves down. That doesn't mean self-hate. That means just serving God and serving others humbly. Jesus was very confident, but he served everyone. He was very confident in his identity. He knew God loved him. He knew he was the heir of all things. And that's why he was able to serve other people. People who aren't humble, they're not secure in who God made them to be. So... We all have a little bit of that. May the Lord help us. Amen? Amen. Well, Jesus said it. Peter said it. We are called to humble ourselves. In the midst of humbling ourselves and feasting on uh, not bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God, Jesus called us to seek first His kingdom. To seek first His kingdom means to seek the coming of the future dimensions of the kingdom. He's speaking about the future. He's also speaking about the present dominion of God and what it looks like and feels like now through the gospel and the Holy Spirit as a community of faith on mission. So it's seeking first God's kingdom as a great expression of humility that is what this series is about. So for a little while now, I'm going to introduce, well, I'm already introducing it. Okay, prophetically putting us on the map, chastisement and humility. And now conceptually, we're going to Matthew chapter 5. So we're going to read this passage and then talk about 
the kingdom and life in the kingdom. Why is the kingdom a humbling entity? Why is seeking the kingdom a humble pursuit? Well, because the kingdom is not just a thing that's coming. It's not just some government that God happens to lead. It is God ruling. That is the kingdom. God's kingdom is God's rule. And before he takes over the world politically and uh, physically, he wants to, to show a hostile world what his dominion looks like embodied by a family who belongs to Jesus that scripture variously calls the elect, the church, etc. Us. Right? So we are called to show what God's kingdom looks like through our embodiment of Christ as, as his body and through the humble life that he calls us to. So Jesus teaches on this matter in this age. And he does so throughout, of course, all of his teachings. But in particular, throughout Matthew's gospel, there are five major moments when Jesus gives this great sermon that we now have as part of the legacy and the treasure of Scripture. And his first one is the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew chapter 5. And that sermon begins with the Beatitudes. This is pure kingdom teaching. This is as rarefied air as you could get. The fact that we have these words should give us great honor and appreciation. Because these are the words of life. I heard the story of some preacher in some past time. I don't know who it was. I don't know when it was. But he got up in his pulpit and he said, he got up in his pulpit to preach and he said, you're about to hear the greatest sermon the world has ever known. Of course, you probably know where this is going, but everybody thought, you're going to say that about your own sermon? And then he just read the Sermon on the Mount. Because it wasn't his sermon, it was the Lord's sermon. And it's the greatest sermon ever preached. That's what it was, the greatest sermon ever preached. You're about to hear the greatest sermon ever preached. And it's just preached the Sermon on the Mount. So simple, so earthy, yet it's, king, it's the kingdom on earth. Right. Okay. So we're still, you know, we're just going to take a little while longer and introduce our way into the Beatitudes. I'm not going to give you a line-by-line exposition. That'll be for the next time. But we're going to begin by reading it. By the way, before we look at it, don't look yet. Don't look. How many Beatitudes are there? Almost eight. Now he does repeat the next, well the next one. He repeats the last one a different way. And he starts with blessed. So some people would say nine, but the form changes, it's eight. Unless you say otherwise, Lord. Alright, don't look. What's the first one? Anybody know? Or in spirit, what's the promise? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the second one? And, and, and when you answer, don't, don't look and answer. Answer from your own memory. What's the second one? Blessed are those... Who said it? Zane? 
Who said it first? It was Harmony. Amen, brothers. I wanted to see he did. I mean, you both are going to say he said it first. So, and I translated happy. We'll get back to that. Happy are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. Happy are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Happy or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Is that three? Um, And then number four? Happy are those... Okay, what do we have here now? I have to... Poor in spirit, mourn, meek. Uh, meek they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those... Someone said it. Who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they... Sh- they shall be satisfied. Because I won't remember it unless I'm saying it. So. Uh, and then the fifth one is... No? Merciful. Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then... Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then happy are the... Peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then happy are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we got the kingdom of heaven. A couple of observations. Number one, the first beatitude and the eighth beatitude are given promises in the present tense. If you're poor in spirit, the kingdom is yours now. If you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, the the kingdom is yours now. And the other six in between all have future promises. You shall be satisfied. You shall receive mercy. You shall see God. And so the bulk of them are motivated by future promises fulfilled. The other two are recognizing the inheritance we have even now. So, when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn. Man, I hope I get these right. (laughs) After all that, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who... Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Happy are the... Did I get it right? Did I already miss it? Mess it up? Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So, a few comments on... On this passage, okay. Um, Alright, so check this out. Sermon on the Mount. Some, some people in history have viewed the Sermon on the Mount as more, more law that's unobtainable. And the Sermon on the Mount is just given to make us feel bad and depend on God because we can never live that way. Turn the other cheek, praying, fasting, giving. Don't judge ever anyone Treat one another with such gentle respect. Don't judge, but rather help get the thing out. It's like, there's no way we could do all that. Actually, Jesus wouldn't teach it if we weren't able to do it. Because we're able to do it. We're able to fulfill the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Because of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are 
the gateway into the rest of the sermon. This is very important. The Beatitudes are Jesus' introduction to the sermon, but as we'll see later on, each Beatitude corresponds to one part of the sermon. So if we have the spirit of the Beatitudes in our heart, we can live out Jesus' commandments in the rest of the sermon. Put another way, the Beatitudes, and I'll explain what I mean, the Beatitudes constitute the ethos of the kingdom, and the rest of the sermon explains the ethics of the kingdom. See, both of those words, ethos and ethics, start with the E-T-H, same root, because the ethos, uh, an ethos is your internal value system, what you value, your convictions, what you believe, what you hold dear, and the ethics are the way you and I live that corresponds to our value system. So our value system is not reflected by what we post on the website, Unless it happens to be true. Our value system is what we actually do with our lives. Because the ethics directly correspond to our ethos on the inside. So if our ethics are bad, it doesn't matter what our doctrinal statements are, what, what, it's, what our ethics are saying, what we really value in our heart. Come on. So the Beatitudes, are, they are Jesus' explanation of kingdom ethos. In other words, what does the king value? And what should his disciples value? Well, he explains that in the Beatitudes. Woo, yeah. The word ethos in Greek means a custom or a habit, one's character, the, the fundamental character or the spirit of a culture. That's the ethos. It's the underlying sentiment that informs a culture's beliefs or customs or practices expressed by a group or a society. So what Jesus is doing when he comes before he even died to provide the redemption that allows us to be born again and come into the kingdom, he gave all these teachings to show us what the kingdom was, what its values are, and what the lifestyle is that corresponds to those values. So precious are these teachings. So precious. The Sermon on the Mount just unfurls the values of God's kingdom so that we can value the same things. So neat. Okay, reading on. So what what Jesus is doing is forming a distinct society that is cross and Christ-centered and supernatural. And we can't live a supernatural lifestyle unless we have supernatural value system that we hold dear in our hearts. So that's what Jesus is impressing on his disciples. That's why I quoted the beginning of the passage when Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain as if there was going to be a separation. Those who want to climb will follow me up here. Because it's going to take some effort. I'm not going to... There was this old uh, gross comedy skit I, I saw when I was little that it was doing a fake commercial for a restaurant called Pre-Chew Charlie's. It was a restaurant that if you couldn't chew your own food, they'd chew it for you. I know it's gross. But it's funny how that's so gross in the natural, but in the spirit we're okay with it. Right? Discipleship takes effort. We don't want other people's chewing the cud and then 
given to us, right? That's immaturity. We're blown about by every wind of doctrine. Come on. So, yeah, Jesus climbed the mountain to see who would follow him there. It's good. And then when his disciples came to him, the loyalists, he opened his mouth and out came heaven through these words. The Beatitudes comprise the heaven's kingdom's ethos. It's the value system of heaven's society on earth. That if we hold these values in our hearts, we have the power unleashed to live the life that corresponds to the values. Oh, guys, that's not my preaching. It's this, and it's so good. The ethos refers to the dominant assumptions of a people. It refers to the inner character or disposition of a community or a group or a person. It's the inner value system that creates the outer life. And here Jesus says, here's God's heart. Here's his value system from his heart. I'm putting it into words. So if your heart is open, you can take what's in his heart and put it in your heart. And the first word of every beatitude, and it characterizes... Every beatitude, it's what makes it a beatitude, is happiness, joy. It's the first thing he confronts people with. That if you're interested in this and you believe, you receive something that can't help but make you happy. But it's a kind of happiness. It's not derived from this world. That's what makes it supernatural. Because lots of things can make our hearts happy, even legitimate things. There's nothing wrong with that if it's legitimate and it's in its place if it's only natural. But that happiness is not supernatural. The happiness Jesus is talking about gives us spiritual, emotional energy to do things that are completely counterintuitive in this world. Jesus says, you can't obey these words from from verse... What's the last verse there? From verse... I can't see it. Ten onward. You can't fulfill those words unless your hearts are happy because of the kingdom. See, being happy is not selfish or a sin. Being happy, of course not. Pursuing happiness is not in itself selfish or a sin. It's pursuing happiness everywhere else but the kingdom. Or anywhere else but the kingdom. For ultimate happiness, that's selfishness and sinfulness. If we're not happy with the kingdom, then we're our hearts are proud. Then that is sin. God literally judged His people in the Old Testament. I mean, I read it again today in Deuteronomy, I think, 28. That I, I will bring these curses on you if you do not serve me with joy. Which sounds kind of, sounds harsh. It's like, well, that's not going to win any friends and influence people. But it does in context. You were living under tyrants. You had no dignity. You had no identity. You were harshly abused. And I delivered you because I love you. 
And I brought you through the wilderness to shape you. And I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And I will bless your socks off from head to toe, from coast to the eastern border. I will bless you. You will always be the head. You will never be the tail. You will always be the lender. You will never be the borrower. I will bless you. I will crown you with loving kindness and compassion if you just remain loyal to me. You will be abundantly and irreversibly blessed. No one will overtake you. Your enemies will come at you one way and they will flee seven ways. I am nothing but good to you. And I've delivered you and I've blessed you. And I've made you my own. You're the possession of the only God. How could you possibly be distracted and rejoice in other things? Jeremiah said, well, the Lord said through Jeremiah, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they've dug out for themselves cisterns that can't even hold any water. I mean, I'm the source of life. I'm the satisfaction of the human spirit, the Lord's saying. My people have forsaken that to go to stagnant, dirty water that makes them sick when they drink it. And it doesn't even hold water anyway. They're empty, really. But if they... Find a way to drink. It's just muddy sludge, mildew junk that just gets inside your insides and kills you. It's like, I don't get it. So the the Lord reveals himself sufficiently and gives us this great kingdom. And that's the key. That if we perceive it, our hearts rejoice. So the great value of the kingdom is to value the kingdom to the point of making our hearts happy. When we, let's put it this way. When the kingdom can be so real to our hearts that we rejoice just because of kingdom promises, then we're developing the kind of inner strength through humility that gives us the buoyancy to float above this hostile world full of temptations and obey Jesus and, and, and walk in His ways. The, the energy of obedience is the joy of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? The great kingdom value is to be happy in the kingdom. It sounds so superficial to natural ears, but it's, a, it's I believe, exactly what Jesus is teaching. C.S. Lewis said something to this effect. The pursuit of pleasure in itself is not sin. Our sin is that we're too easily pleased. We look for that inner, that happiness that, that's not just the fleeting Feeling, it's a deep, come on guys, it's a deep contentment. We seek to fill that void on all the candy and the junk food that this world has to offer. Rather than feasting on the abundance of your house, O Lord. And drinking deeply of the river of your delights. That's faith. That's happiness. It's feasting on God And the promises of his kingdom to be fulfilled. And having our hearts delighted in that. That delight gives us the energy to do things like forgive. To serve and not get noticed. To do this thing that the Lord called us to do that was terribly inconvenient. But the the reality of the promise at the end is like... (laughs) But if that's not real to us, we can't be happy. How can you derive happiness over a resurrection reward that's not real to your or my heart? So that's then... Okay, if that's the value, then Lord... This is why I prayed at the beginning, if you remember now. Lord, open up our hearts so that your kingdom is real to our hearts. So that our eyes are open and we're seeing the divinity... 
and the sovereignty of Jesus and his coming. So we're not just living for your blessings now, but we're, we're going to wake up one day and our forever will be determined on the day that we wake up in resurrection and our rewards. That's it. Life's determined based on our faithfulness now. And Lord, those rewards make my heart happy. So that's why Jesus says, happy are those who mourn. Because mourning is negative. You will be comforted. Oh, you're going to have a comfort. You'll never have a tear again. Never a hunger pain. No emotional pain. No weirdness where you're wondering what people are thinking and that bothers you too much. All that's gone. It'll be absolute bliss. Every bit of mourning over the right things will be comforted forever. While the people outside the city will continue to mourn ceaselessly. You will be comforted. It's coming. Believe me. In fact, God takes it personally when we don't believe in the future glory. It's greater than what we feel now. Let me put it this way. We must believe in these rewards. Or we don't believe in God. It's not selfish to be delighted in the promises of the age to come. It's selfish not Because God takes that kingdom and those rewards personal. So if he designs it and says, as Jesus said, little children, don't be afraid. Little flock, don't be afraid. God is, the Father is so pleased to give you his kingdom. And if we're like, ah, nah, I'm just going to serve the Lord because I love him so much. It's not because of what I'm going to get. The Lord's like, I'm the one wanting to give it to you. I take that personally. You can't divide me from what I've designed to give you. Oh, no, Lord, I don't want that. I just want you. It's like, what kind of weird formula is that? Come on, what does it say in Hebrews 11? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For those who come to God must believe that He is, and they must believe that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And then you look at the Hall of Faith, it's all about receiving promises that you can't receive until that day. When those promises and those rewards motivate us to where we're happy now, we can walk on water. The word for happy, this great kingdom ethos, is happiness. And then it has all these subcategories, mourning, meekness, etc., etc. Those are the things we discuss later. For now, we're getting our minds in gear, just, just for a few more minutes here. Really, we're about done. Happy, the word in Greek is makarios. You don't need to know that, but the reason why I say it is because the word blessed in English translates two words in the Greek New Testament. One is a blessing that's spoken or something given. Like God blessed them with milk and honey. Someone blessed me with a gift card to a coffee shop. That's a blessing. This blessing, okay, that word blessed is eulogetos. And it means a good word spoken or something, a benefit that's granted. This word makarios means a state of happiness or contentment because of favorable conditions. So Jesus is saying the, the first kind of blessings should put you in a state of blessedness. You're happy. It's a word that could mean, like in secular usage, it could have meant fortunate or privileged. It could have meant like, it, th- this word was used to describe the wealthy. Because they had all the money they needed. They, they just were well off. 
So they didn't have any worries along those lines. They didn't have any cares. The, the secular use of the word would call them blessed Makarios. Jesus said, and he was speaking to mostly poor people. He's like, you guys are the Makarios ones. You're the ones with the deep contentment in your spirit. If you possess the kingdom and the kingdom riches and rewards make you happy. If they're so real to you, your heart is happy, then you're happy, you're blessed, and you can do whatever I require of you. Sometimes when I would um, illustrate this to our students, I would use this analogy. I would say, um, how many of you are afraid to speak in public? And by the way, if you're not afraid to raise your hand, I'm curious how many of you are willing to admit you're afraid to speak in public. If you're not, keep your hand down. Oh, some of you, okay, okay. Some hands went up. Are you joshing with me? Come on up here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> speaking in public, speaking in public is one of the worst fears when people are polled. Speaking publicly is actually one of the greatest fears of people. Um, and generally speaking, I'm not afraid to speak in public, but sometimes I still am. Sometimes I get very nervous. I have no idea why. So I can, I can actually relate. Sometimes it doesn't even occur to me to be nervous. Other times it's like, well, I don't, I don't know what I'm saying. So I get that. But when I would have the students raise their hand, some of them would admit it. I'd say, okay, so imagine this, just pretend. And some of my students here remember, I see the smile. You remember this illustration from when I taught this? No, maybe not. Okay, that's all right. Well, here you go. remember the frogs. Yeah, the frogs and oldie. Um... Okay, you're afraid to speak in public. The last thing you want to do is get up and give a speech in front of this many people. How many of you would be afraid to get up and give a speech in front of this group right here? Sorry. How many? Just raise your hand. I won't call you up. No embarrassment. They are. They're raising their hands. Okay, so, but let me ask you this and be serious. And, and, and just pretend this is true. If I said, you've got to get up and give a speech for 10 minutes. You're like, no, thanks. But if you do it, I will hand you a suitcase full of $100 bills that amounts to untaxable $200,000 yours to take on. How many of you who raised your hands afraid with that deal on the table would come up and give a 10-minute speech? You would because the reward would alleviate your fear. The reward is more powerful than whatever it is you're worried about because you're like, the 200 grand is way worth it. (laughs) Of course, yes, you have to tithe. I'm not going to take that off. But the tax, legally we got it worked out. Some FBI agent allowed us to not have to pay taxes on (laughs) So you get the money. Guess what? You're looking forward to that reward. You'd be up here and you'd be like, okay, when I was little, I got a bike. And then that bike. And then, and then I say, okay, buddy, time's up, you're done. It's like, no, no, I got one more story. And you'll keep speaking because that 200 grand did something in your heart. It's like the reward overshadows my fears. The reward is greater than my self-consciousness. It's worth it. The rewards of the kingdom... By the Spirit, put something in our hearts to make us so anticipatory of those rewards that it's like, I can do this. 
I'll get up and give the speech. I'll do whatever, Lord, you require of me. Because the rewards that you have to offer are worth it. Jesus is saying, if you value my kingdom, you obtain the kingdom value of happiness that energizes you to do everything else. Happier those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Happier the meek, they shall inherit the earth. It's like, yeah, I'll take some earth. Come on. It's, it's, it's what people go to war over today, is territory and land. And Jesus is like, you don't have to go to war. Just yield your life. Let them do what they want. You'll inherit everything everyone else is fighting for. Man, and if you know that's happening, it's like, I can be me. It's like, I can let people say what they want about me and falsely accuse me. Jesus, Jesus did that silent before his shears. I know what happens on the third day. And guess what? I'm satisfied with that. I can wait. Because God's promises are sure. I'm not doubting and fluctuating. Jesus is saying, I get the whole reward on the other side of this. So Pilate can say what he wants. And the Jews can say what they want. And the Romans can say what they want. Because I see what's on the other side. And Jesus is saying, my disciples are the same way. They see what's on the other side. It's real to their hearts. And their hearts are happy now with what they're going to get then. And that's the power of the Spirit to obey. It's not just abstract. I tried to curse the guy who got in front of me, but... Out came blessing, and sometimes that does happen. It's not magic where we're just walking by the Spirit like robots who are just taking over. It's happiness in the heart that releases the power of the Spirit to walk in the Spirit. It's like, Lord, you're real and your rewards are real, and the Spirit makes them real to my Spirit, and so that contentment, that makarios, gives me the energy to do whatever you require of me. I pray our hearts would experience. The kingdom as that real. It's where the kingdom actually makes our hearts happy. And not just our team winning or the right amount, the, the, the right setup in our house or the right amount of finances or the right job or the right boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse, though that's important. But it's, it's, it's not that these things are what gives me the ultimate contentment, Lord. Somehow it's your promises. Now, what kind of people like that? I'll close with this little story from when I was teaching this many years ago, the same point. We were talking about the kingdom, talking about the rewards. And I was just getting so excited in the Lord. I'm way more mellow at the moment, but it wasn't just my excitement, because I can be prone to emotions um, and hyperactivity. But this was the Spirit of God as well. I mean, the Spirit of God, the anointing was there. These things were very real to me as I was teaching. I could see them on a different level than normal. And I was talking about having the rewards of the kingdom so real to my heart that my heart is happy just over those rewards. And I knew it was beyond me at the moment, but I wanted it to be something I grasped. Does that make sense? Lord, I want these things to be real to my heart. And I, I was talking about these things being real to my heart, and, but I was on some kind of Holy Spirit crescendo. And I said, I want my heart to be this way. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to the heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I said, don't desire the woman in your heart. Right? It's all in the heart. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say, don't even be angry. It's like, it's in the heart. That's where the life is. That's where the value system is. That's where the blood comes from. 
So I was saying, Lord, I want your kingdom this real to my heart. I, I want my heart to be this way. I want my heart to be this way. I just broke into a prayer. And I said, I want my heart to be this way. I want my heart to be this way. And I got to such a crescendo that I didn't have English words to say anything after that. So I said a phrase in tongues. I don't know what it was, but X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. I said like three times. I want my heart to be this way. I want my heart to be this way. Blah, 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 blah. No interpretation. I went about my business. After class, a student runs up. She was the first missionary ever sent out from our school. She wasn't sent from our organization, but she's the first one that went on the field. She was preparing to go to Russia. She was learning Russian. She was getting good at it. Now she's fluent, of course. She married a Russian. And lived in Russia, so, you know. But anyway, she seemed to be a, um, a reliable source. She came up to me all excited. She was also in our youth group uh, back in Wisconsin before Brownsville, so it was Pastor Bab. Pastor Bab! <laughs> you said, I want my heart to be this way. I want my heart to be this way. She said, and then when you spoke in tongues, you spoke in Russian. And you said, and it will. It will. It will. And then you went on teaching. I just thought you should know that. Like, yeah, I should. I, we want our hearts to be this way. To value the kingdom above all things. And to seek its satisfaction therein. And for the kingdom to be so real to our hearts... That we're actually happy enough to have the Holy Spirit energy to obey Jesus. We want our hearts to be that way. And they will. They will. They will. I'd like to pray for you one more time. Let's, Let's stand together. Jesus, joy of our desire. Lord Jesus, we look to you right now. Teach us to pursue you as the all-satisfying God. To to feast on the abundance of your house. And to drink deeply of the river of your delights, Lord. May our highest and deepest delights be found in you. That we can confess with David. Lord, you have shown us the path of life. You will not leave our souls to decay in the, in the grave. You will not leave your Holy One to decay. But you've shown us the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand, I should say at your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Lord, may the beauty of your person and of your character pierce and penetrate our hearts like never before. May worship evermore become a beholding of your glory and a satisfaction with your goodness and your greatness, your sovereignty and your kindness, your mercy and your justice, your righteousness and your compassion. Oh, may we simply delight in you to the point where we have to speak up and say, praise the Lord. Thank God you are awesome. Lord, may we overflow with languages we don't even know because your goodness is just too good and the delight in our hearts is just too great. And may you be satisfied with this kind of offering, this praise and this worship, not so that we might merely have awesome experiences, but so that we might develop as disciples 
who are so truly and deeply happy with your kingdom and the glory of the coming resurrection, that that future day impresses us now to walk the way of the Lord in absolute humility, that you might have a people, Christ-centered, word-based, spirit-filled, satisfied with you, so nothing else tempts us. Oh, may it be because you deserve such a people. And may this precious flock, these churches, and those that are not here tonight but are are part of us and, and the saints of this city, Lord, may they be blessed with such an outpouring of the Spirit to help us value and be happy in you, Jesus, and your great kingdom. Because you deserve such a people. Praise God. Jesus is King. In His name we pray. Amen and amen.